The podcast is brought to you in association with PlayerLayer.com. PlayerLayer is a sports brand with clothing that's built to last. Their products are simple, functional, no fast fashion, using eco-friendly materials. Their Sport and Drive Change campaign is certainly one that sits well with me personally and the 5Ws podcast. They create clothing to help connect athletes to the team and to build bonds between players, coaches, staff and supporters. One earth, one team, belong. Follow the 5Ws podcast on Instagram to receive a 25% discount code for player layer clothing. Often what we do is help coaches unlearn what they've been taught in the past. The wider discourse and wider discussions with them is we sometimes help them realise how rubbish what they've done before has been and how ill-prepared for the job they've been. And I think what I do as a teacher is not necessarily tell people how to coach or what to coach or information about coaching, but I help them recognise what they don't know for themselves and to find solutions for themselves. Welcome to the 5Ws podcast. What works for who, in what context and why. My name is Kevin Shattuck and the podcast forms part of my professional doctorate at Leeds Beckett University, exploring a biopsychosocial approach Athlete Development, supervised by Professor Kevin Till and Dr. Tom Mitchell. Each episode, a unique perspective on the subject is offered in relation to the lived experiences of current athletes or coaches, reflections from former athletes or coaches, and theoretical conceptual frameworks from academia. The podcast seeks to be a relevant form of knowledge exchange for a wide range of practitioners interested in athlete development, strength conditioning, and sports coaching. I hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Andy Kirkland, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Kevin. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Before we get into the main discussion, would you be so kind as to give the listeners whatever information you feel necessary about yourself? All right, so I'm seeing the Leeds Beckett uh, t-shirt that uh, you're wearing at the moment. So I'm at uh, the competition. So I'm a lecturer at the uh, University of Stirling in, in sport coaching. I'm a triathlon coach, but more and more at the moment, I'm a developer of coaches, and I've had quite diverse experiences in and through sports. Through, I won't pretend for a second to have been a decent triathlete because I wasn't, but triathlon was my entry into working professionally in sports where the national coach actually encouraged me to pack up my job when I was 
around about 30 and studied to become the best coach I could be uh, because he said, you might think you know what you're talking about, uh, but actually, no, you don't. You, you need to go and learn your trade, mate. And, and uh, he being such a, a, a good coach, I listened to him and did what he, he said. And uh, I studied sports science, as many people do, did an undergrad at Manchester Met and crew in all Sager. I had a wonderful experience there, loved every second. Uh, then I progressed to do a PhD in exercise physiology related to uh, cycling performance. So there's a physiology side to me. I'm a basically accredited sport and exercise scientist. After or, or during doing my PhD, you'll, you'll relate to this, uh, I, I stupidly uh, took quite a demanding job at the uh, Scottish Institute of Sport uh, and worked across quite a lot of programmes there from swimming, curling, skiing, rugby, cycling. I missed any, probably. So uh, I've been embedded in multiple cultures and different sports as a, a, a physiologist. But when that got too much for me, as it often does for practitioners in sport, oh, this is too much. Uh, I, I went off to British cycling, which is my first sport and my first love. I can look at a 30-year-old bike and tell you every part on it without looking at the parts. Uh, so I'm a cycling geek. So I worked at Brit British Cycling as a coach developer for six or seven years. That journey came to an end about five years ago. And uh, I fought to get into academia because I didn't have a track record of publication and everything. It was more, I'm a practitioner who's got a PhD in some a different subject, but I came into the performance coaching program and have delivered on the performance coaching program uh, at Sterling for about five years. It's a great job because I'm working with coaches, one who's head of uh, coaching for uh, the pit lane for McLaren F1, through to uh, coaches working at grassroots and football academies, rugby academies throughout the world. So it's great just working with professional coaches who are doing uh, a master's in, in sports coaching. So it's a great job. Uh, and I'm a triathlon coach on top of that as well. As is tradition, given your academic status, we start with a classic BBC University challenge quote, your starter for 10 in your recent article, The Coaching Emperor is Wearing No Clothes, you state there is consensus that the UK coaching certificate framework from which most coaching qualifications are supported is not fit for purpose. With that statement, are you being provocative? Is it a call for action? What response are you looking for? Uh -huh. I think I've got the response I was looking for. First of all, I'm speaking to you. Uh, I've spoken to uh, people from everywhere from Sport England, Australian Institute of Sport. I've been on a number of podcasts. 
And uh, I've spoken to a number of people who run coach development programs for national governing bodies as well. So I've got exactly the, the type of response I wanted. Fundamentally, I'm a teacher and I want to support people to learn. And, and learning to me is a process in which I will help others to think and or act differently about a subject, hopefully to influence how they practice. So that as with everything, there it's complex. There's complex reasons for me choosing to write the piece. To a degree, it's pr- provocative, uh, but I'm old enough and long in the tooth enough to know that it doesn't serve anyone well to be provocative for the sake of it. Uh, I think it's built on years of experience at the coalface, looking or experiencing the implications of not very good coaching, seeing some great coaching too. And uh, in my teaching practice, I'm working with some amazing coaches, genuinely amazing. I've got so much respect for them. But there's recognition that what I do with them is often transformational. And what my colleagues do as well is transformational. And often what we do is help coaches unlearn what they've been taught in the past. The wider discourse and the wider discussions with them is we sometimes help them realise how rubbish what they've done before has been and how ill-prepared for the job they've been. And I think what I do as a teacher is not necessarily tell people how to coach or what to coach or information about coaching, but I help them recognise what they don't know for themselves and to find solutions for themselves. And that that can be really transformational. So, so my motivation is to make things better, to try and encourage policymakers and decision makers to think about the implications of what they do in their roles, uh, what national governing body, coach educators, uh, I want to encourage them to reflect on whether what they do is effective or they are simply uh, blowing smoke up their own backsides and making themselves believe they're, they're actually doing something worthwhile and useful. And a lot of the time, I believe they've really got good intention, they're good people, but they're not having the programs themselves, the structures aren't have or the impact isn't a positive one. Sometimes it's negative or even coaches underprepared for their role, setting too narrow constraints, say, with level one and level two coaches that what they're taught to do doesn't reflect the reality of coaching at the coalface, yet they've not got the knowledge to understand what they need to be doing. Uh, And I think that national governing bodies have a moral responsibility to 
sell products because that's what's expected of them is to sell products, but sell products that actually work. Uh, as a coach educator, uh, I, I find myself, or, or having been a coach educator in a, a national governing body, I see myself as an input, someone to get something out of who's done all the development investment myself, which is fine. I'm a valuable asset if used appropriately. And and I, I don't think as a whole, national governing bodies are uh, treating their coach educators as the assets they actually are. And that comes from higher up the, the food chain from policy and boards and, and so on. So it's a really complex, complex motivations for for choosing to write the piece. The definition you use to describe coaching at the beginning of the paper, I believe is an, an excellent one and, and really resonates with me. And I'll, I'll go through it now. Coaching is a social activity benefiting from interpersonal skills. It is complex and dynamic and yet also goal-orientated, focusing on bringing about change, usually an improvement in the athlete's performance. Furthermore, it involves a range of activities and skills employed to bring about the desired changes. However, you believe the systems that support coaching are incoherent, ineffective and not fit for purpose. Could you just unpack why you think that is the case? There's quite a lot to unpack, and I'm glad you gave me a heads up to what questions you were going to ask, because I had to think about them, and I've uh, had to, well, it's all in the piece that I've written, but uh, I had to synthesise it down. So first of all, uh, there's really limited evidence to suggest that the UKCC framework, and I know it's in a process of evolution, probably won't exist in the next few years, but uh, there's very limited evidence to suggest that that framework works, first of all. Uh, I think the anecdotal evidence would point towards it not an experts in the field uh, believing it, it, it doesn't either. And there, there's uh, a number of reasons for that. And I think in a, another podcast, uh, Professor Chris Cushion from Loughborough talked uh, about uh, that. But he suggested that it was a, a collection of stuff put together in a slightly incoherent way on, on particular programs. Uh, we have got... Uh, arbitrary boundaries between qualifications which do not reflect what coaches do at the coalface. So I, I would use an example of, well, level one coaches in many national governing bodies can only deliver pre-planned sessions either from a uh, resource from the national governing body or from a a coach with a higher level qualification. Now, I, I would uh, ask those who uh, have uh, almost set that as the, the guidelines for coaching for insurance as well, to say, well, how do people plan? Have you ever delivered a coaching session that has gone to plan? 
I, I, I've never done it. I, I'm just not. You, you get people turning up uh, that you don't expect to. You may have a parent coming along and wanting a discussion. Then it starts raining. Uh, then stuff happens. And your session looks completely different at the the end of the day, in which you probably not achieved half the stuff you set out to achieve. But that's normal. It's not that the session hasn't gone well, because it may well have. It's just because uh, putting something on a piece of paper and hoping it happens just doesn't happen in real life. Rather, coaches have got to make decisions in the moment based on the information presented in front of them. Uh, these decisions can be complex, unpredictable, and coaches need the skills to be able to do that. So by handing a coach a piece of paper and saying, deliver that off that session because I'm more qualified than you, does that make sense? No, No, it doesn't. And then we need to progress them to a higher level. So it may be doing six or, or linked sessions. But these linked sessions aren't necessarily based on uh, a biopsychosocial model, as you, you've been talking about in your research before we went live. They're often technical models that are not built on skill acquisition theory. So it might be uh, using drills, isolated activities, using cones to set the constraints that don't really bear much relation to the actual sporting environment. And then we bring it back to the whole and hope some sort of transference of skill has taken place. But the, the evidence surrounding ecological dynamics and such suggest in most cases, that sort of method of coaching isn't as effective as a more ecological people task environment approach to coaching. Then, oh, I'm having a rant now, haven't I? Uh, then we've got uh, the people that develop uh, and deliver the coaching qualification. We've got very limited research on these people. So, again, it's anecdotal. But to deliver uh, effective coach development and coach education, we need really skilled uh, coach educators. And it's very difficult to access the right people to deploy them. My experience has been, though, that there has been very, very limited investment or value put into the coach developers at any stage uh, since about 1996. So people that have just fallen into these positions because they've been at the right place at the right time, they've been a good coach or something like that, and they've got a job in developing others without the necessary, necessary underpinning understanding of the why of the practice. And as a result, what they sometimes do is reinforce cultural norms without a deeper theoretical understanding of the whys behind what they're teaching. And sometimes that can 
Wow. Many of the listeners will relate to this going on to courses. And if uh, they don't do what the coach educator has asked them to do, they will be referred or failed until they assimilate with exactly the vision of coaching that the coach educator wants to see. So I think the UKCC framework implicitly has encouraged that type of competency ticking. Uh, But again, it's complex because with the right developers, the process could uh, be better. Then we've got one size fits all belief that coach development is linear. So you come in at level one, do level two, level three, and you build your expertise in that way. Uh, So that level three or level four is focused more on performance. But there's recognition, and I think recognition from sport, England, sport, Scotland, uh, UK coaching, that that development pathway isn't linear that we can become expert at working with children, working in a development environment, or working in high performance. But they take different skills. We also have a policy level conflation between sport and physical activity. There's not been sufficient differentiation. There's a drive to get more people into sport to drive a physical activity agenda to uh, promote the health and well-being of the nation. There's limited evidence to suggest that works. And I think it relates to a further question. There's a limited market of people to grow that participation as well. Finally, and I think I alluded to it when I was talking about uh, level one and level two, Fundamentally, we want really good decision makers that can deal with changes with people task environment rather than cookie cutter approaches of this is the way to do it. We need effective decision makers in the context in which we work. And there's limited, if not I would say no content in most programs on decision making. Very limited stuff on emotional intelligence, soft skills, the types of things that most of us recognise are fundamental to being uh, a good coach. I just want to reflect back some of the things you were saying there. National government bodies has this strive towards these standards and and developing these coach, uh, coaching courses for a business model. You've suggested they result in control and regulate philosophy rather mm-hmm. than enabling and empowering coaches. How do you suggest we can empower coaches? It's a difficult thing to do. And there, there's mixed philosophies. One of my heroes, I don't know if everyone's heard of him, but Noam Chomsky, who's a a linguist and a political thinker as well as a a number of things. And he talks about the purpose of education. He does a great thing on YouTube about the purpose of education. Um, And he suggests that 
many people working in education are liberal thinkers that want to enable and empower, and those in power ascribe to a neoliberal agenda of control. And I think we have got a degree of that in, in coaching, that there is a degree of control and power. How we address that it is difficult in particular political climates, but I, I think if we recognise the different segments, uh, I can do the neoliberal as well and talk about market segmentation. So if we realise that uh, there's professional coaches, there's volunteer coaches, we recognise the, the motivations of different people and where they fit into uh, the system, sometimes we need to recognise that lots of volunteers want that cookie cutter approach. They want to be told how to do. Talk about minimum standard for deployment for these people. It's typical that uh, an average coach coming into the system is likely to be a parent that's motivated by their kids being in a club and that their, their coaching journey will last no more than two or three years. So that it's overly idealistic to be talking about empowering and developing lifelong learners when they're only going to be operational for a few years. And then we've got uh, the professional coaches, those working for uh, governing bodies, those acting as role models, them heading up performance programs, uh, uh, head coaches, and those who are really motivated to be the best coach they can be. I think we need to focus on empowering these people through developing uh, uh, educational programs focused on what. Well, Dave Collins and others talk about as the professional judgment and decision making. The it depends philosophy of, of coaching. So working with these people to help them develop an understanding of what effective coaching depends upon, and that's how we empower. Also, if we recognise how coaches learn, it's usually through through doing, through assimilation, through watching each other. So that if we focus on uh, empowering the potential leaders of the future or the, and the role models, then the volunteers are more likely to assimilate in a positive way. So to empower, I would suggest it depends on who the coach is and whether we want to empower them. We need to be mindful of the pervading agendas coming from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport who drive Sport England UK sports strategies. I believe we're doing a better job in Scotland because well, Sport Scotland are doing some really good things because They've not got the Department of Culture, Media and Sport on their back. So there's a little bit more freedom up here to do more positive things. So it's, it's complex. How do we empower people? That means changing the whole education system. But uh, I, I think we can work towards it in sport by focusing on the right people within the right markets. 
How difficult do you think that's going to be? Because in, in the paper, you make some very keen observations around strategic planning and leadership and the infinite growth of sport that most NGB funding models are based upon. Can you talk to me about how ultimately that's a flawed approach? We can use the analogy with climate, global warming consensus is that it's to do with overconsumption, driving towards continual growth. And we know for the planet to survive, there can't be infinite growth. And anyway, we're at the point where uh, many people can't consume any more. There's a really good model from, uh, I'm going to get all geeky now, I said I would never become an academic and speak in big words, but there, there's a really nice book uh, by a chap called Stafford Beer called Design and Freedom. Now, Stafford Beer, he, he's dead now, uh, but he, he was like the godfather of uh, cybernetics. So the effective organization of mind and machine. And he basically designed a, a model showing how uh, the systems become overwhelmed as growth increases to a point of where it can't be sustained anymore, it collapses. I would suggest that most sports aren't growing anymore. For one sport to prosper, then another must fail. So we're taking participants away from, if one sport is growing, it's taking participants away from another sport and overall growth and participation across all sports isn't increasing. That's what the evidence tells us. Would we not be better focusing on a sustainable model uh, in sport and making people better at what they do rather than getting more people doing it because the, the market simply isn't there. Sport England have talked about it in their market segmentation work on latent market. Who is the latent market? And we've not really got one. There's strategies increase it to, towards uh, increasing uh, participation in uh, deprived groups through, through having greater uh, diversity. But there's lots and lots of barriers typically relating to inequality which means that that market can access sport there is a strategy from nationally uh, to make coaching easier to get into to make it cheaper but the only way to do that is to reduce the quality or have some sort of mass delivery which is typically an online learning course with limited evidence to say it makes any difference. I just don't believe that there's much capacity for growth and to make things more sustainable. Using that model make, means making things cheaper. And I would suggest, no, we just need to target the right parts of the market to be more effective and to focus on evaluating what works and what doesn't work and investing in what works, what's, where there's evidence that it works um, and cutting the bullshit, basically. 
because there's lots of stuff that simply makes people feel better about themselves, ticks a box, uh, covers the agenda of the day, but without any tangible benefits in either increasing participation or enhancing performance. Do you feel we need to split sport and physical activity and those funding models apart and really identify those people need to be active because of obesity and then there's a separate avenue for sport and performance? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I heard from uh, the MSP with Portfolio and uh, Health and Sport and everything talking about sport and physical activity and how it's so important and say, I agree that both are important. I do research in physical activity and currently doing a wee study looking at the physical activity and knowledge of student nurses on physical activity. It's really important to me. Uh, but it's separate. Sport and physical, physical activity could be digging the garden. It could be sport as well, but they're different. And the expertise isn't in sport, first of all, to target that physical activity, or not to a great extent. The market's quite small as well. And uh, the, the challenges of getting the people that need to be most active are probably beyond uh, sport and national governing bodies. I, I genuinely believe that we need to go back uh, 25 years to the core purpose of sport and national governing bodies. That's to provide governance for sport, so rules and regulations, to train coaches, to have some sort of safeguarding oversight and a performance agenda. When it grows beyond that, I don't think there's much evidence to suggest that they've been overly effective in hitting the other agendas. There's people that are better placed to do that. There's ways uh, and means uh, to do it more effectively. I was criticised or challenged recently for being overly... uh, Political. (laughs) But sport and politics are intrinsically linked. And if we look at uh, the reduction in investment in youth clubs, the youth services, youth volunteers who have excellent track records in getting young people involved in activities, I think... uh, It's in the low millions, uh, the investment in youth services now. These services have been pretty effective in getting people involved and active through dance, through more accessible types of physical activity. And it can include sport, but the challenges for these, the communities with less, the barriers into sport are sometimes insurmountable and there's better people there to deliver these things. Same with the clinically obese, same with older people who have never engaged in sport before. There's different ways to do it. You use swimming to raise important questions relating to coach development and the horrible adage 
it's always been done this way and how that can quickly become culturally normalised. You mm-hmm. touched on it briefly, but how do coach education programmes encourage that critical thinking, challenge those cultural norms and try to balance the curriculum? How would I answer that question? First of all, there's got to be a, an awareness, an understanding of what good coaching looks like and how coaches learn uh, and recognition of different ways of, of doing. So to come back to the biopsychosocial model of performance, If we speak to uh, swimming coaches about session delivery, whilst they may recognise different elements of the biopsychosocial, primarily training delivery will be based on aerobic and anaerobic uh, system development. And that's reinforced through coach education programmes throughout the world. There is a I'm rubbish at saying this word. I don't know if I get it right, but it's the social milieu. How, how do you say it? I'd, I'd probably go with that pronunciation, yeah. I won't put on my French accent. <laughs> but it's that wider cultural assimilation that means that some types of practices are normalised. So, so to be able to change any sort of culture or behaviour. Firstly, we must know what the underpinnings behind those behaviours are, how it's been developed, and, and how do we actually influence change. How, how do we do it? I'm not sure. I think if I all of a sudden uh, Boris Johnson decided I want an independent in my government and Andy can be in charge of uh, be the minister for sports. The first thing I would do is have an independent regular regulatory body to provide oversight and funding into sport. Much as I'm a, a liberal thinker, big stick approaches are needed. Funding needs to be associated with doing. So it's kind of do what you're told or you don't get uh, any money. That doesn't necessarily fit comfortably with me, but that's how we uh, encourage change. So it would have to be having oversight and funding associated with developing more balanced programmes across all sports. Uh, and similarly, well, my work uh, and my research is focused on health and mental well-being. But uh, turkeys aren't going to vote for Christmas. We know that the safeguarding processes, the reporting, the duty of care processes in many national governing bodies aren't fit for purpose, primarily because, well, A, because of resources, B, it's not in the national governing body's interests to find that there's cultural flaws in their system, which means they get less funding. So we need independent oversight in sport across the UK and a body with teeth uh, and funding associated with it that can provide that effective oversight. And until we come to that stage, if we ever do, which 
is unlikely, then, then I don't know how much change can take place. Professor Chris Cushion suggests burning the whole system down to the ground and starting again. As you've alluded to there, if you were given the, the powers of government, is, is that realistic? And will the, the same problems arise when politicians and large sums of money exist within sport? Are we really that brave enough to be that radical? I think in Scotland, Sports Scotland are, to an extent, being that radical. So we've got to try and get this right, but a new uh, certificate that's come away from uh, the UKCC, so the Scottish Certificate in Coaching. I think the whole system doesn't necessarily need to be burnt to the ground. We've got uh, wonderful stuff done by people at Leeds Beckett, Andy Abrahams and other in the work that they've done with the ICCE that has developed frameworks for for coaching. So whilst yeah, we I agree with Chris to an extent that yes, we could we should burn the whole system down to the ground, but we've already got a prefabricated system to replace it right away and uh, drive future strategy. So we kind of know what uh, is likely to be effective. We kind of know what we want to achieve uh, so that uh, designing and developing new systems to replace the old one could happen relatively quickly. I think the expertise is there should those uh, fund holders wish to speak to their critical friends, but that, that's probably a little bit idealistic. There, there's too many people with vested interests that are just scared of change. It's kind of uh, scared of jobs. I was quite critical of UK coaching, not because I don't believe they don't do some good stuff, because they do. It's just that asking the question, what is the purpose? Could they have a higher purpose that is more effective? And even if uh, I was the uh, Grim Reaper who came along and burnt the whole system down to the ground, there would still be a place for people within the system to get new jobs with different roles, with different conceptualizations of how coaching should look like. So we need to be able to embrace change, not be fearful of change, uh, but be really honest with ourselves. I'm speaking to everyone here, saying, are we effective at what we're doing? And if we're not, why the hell are we doing it? Uh, We've got a whole system in sport. I think in my article, I said there's there's two purposes in what we do in sport uh, at an institutional level. And that's to uh, get people more active in sport. We want more people in sport, so it needs to be fun. So we need to deliver programs that are fun, that keep people engaged. So even if we're not getting that growth that the government would want, at least we're retaining uh, people that come in for an experience, we hold on to them because it's great fun. We've not got my experience of working with athletes and performance programs. We are still pretty good saying, I've fallen out of the love of the sport. Uh, 
and they've gone on to do something else. Uh, if we retain these people through developing a, effective programs, effective coaching, encourage, retaining that love, uh, I retain the love of sport, really critical, but doesn't mean to say I don't love it. So encouraging that through effective coaching is giving people a great experience, giving them a fun experience, encouraging them uh, or making them want to come back the next week without a big stick. What we've got on some sports, uh, I mentioned gymnastics and swimming, for example. They've got uh, some of the poorest retention rates in sports across the world, in fact. And that athletes leave in their groves in the teenage years where they start to get greater autonomy to make their own choices. What if they love the experience and don't want to leave anymore? Or what if they have such a positive experience and then decide to experience uh, many of the things we most teenagers like to experience and then come back later? Then we drive participation through giving great experiences. And we also want to, there's a performance element. Uh, we want people to achieve their potential. People achieve their potential when they feel valued, when they find experiences meaningful, and uh, they really want to do their best. So we need to ask, are the systems encouraging these things in sport? And if they're not, they're not worth doing. You've used this term a number of times in the conversation and certainly within the paper that we need to be much more evidence-informed in our planning, our approach and delivery. Why do you believe that isn't the case already? What are we, and I'm using the royal we here, scared of by adopting an evidence-informed approach? Evidence is a funny thing. Sometimes evidence, you'll know through your own research, and I think part of my philosophy of research is trying to prove myself wrong. Many of the quangos in sport, I would describe them as ministries of propaganda. They want to only share the good evidence to say we are being effective at what we do and avoid asking questions surrounding where things are ineffective. What was typical, this has changed now, so a number of years ago, National governing bodies were the KPIs for coach education were uh, based on people engaged in coach education programs, not those that completed it. So there wasn't a drive from the national governing bodies for uh, coaches to finish their qualifications. And then the goalposts change and then there's mass panic because it's instead of people coming onto courses, it's people completed. So the stick changes and it's in national governing bodies believe it's in the interest to tell their funders what they want to hear that we're doing a great job Uh, and there's fear and reticence over evidence that may show people in a a bad light rather than saying if it's not working that's an opportunity to improve and use our resources more effectively rather than, oh, this is a 
an existential threat to us. I'll be careful and not mention any names, but a number of researchers I know who have worked with national governing bodies have had challenges in sharing data beyond the national governing body. There's questions asked, well, if you collect this data and it shows us in a bad light, are you still going to publish it? Yet. <laughs> right, so you're not collecting it. Someone in a professional premiership football club looking at performance analysis equipment and its validity and reliability. And we got amazing data from it that could have been published. He said, ah, but we're sponsored by, the league is sponsored by the company that provides this equipment, so we can't have that published. I think that's a good example of the club saying, no, you can't publish that data. Uh, I think the same fear exists within uh, national governing bodies. So I just want to reflect back to you there on those things and national governing bodies in sport arguably trying to do the right thing. I understand sport operates in a very complex, evolving environment, but management tools exist from a variety of sectors to deal with them because, as you say, every organisation faces these types of problems. Is a case of spin and PR and having to put on this brave face that we all need to have on social media now. Why why do sports and national government bodies struggle to do the right thing in terms of this evidence-informed approach? Well, it's a difficult question. I think it relates to the complex interaction between government Sport and quangos, national governing bodies and stakeholders. So I, I, I don't think it's any different to many sectors, particularly where they're, they're government uh, funded. I think one of the challenges we have is that, that many sports receive the majority of their funding from government central bodies and they become detached from the the needs and wants of, of their membership so that there are conflicting agendas which result in destructive uh, cultures evolving. I, I think it takes really, really brave leadership to understand these conflicting agendas. I think Lucy Moore of Sport England in a, a recent paper wrote really nicely about it, about strong leadership, recognising the, the conflict between funders and membership and so on, and being able to, first of all, recognise it, admit it, and then manage it. I think there are ways and means of doing so. Firstly, that's through openness and integrity and being honest about what can and cannot be achieved. It could mean not taking the Queen's shilling if you actually believe that the key performance indicator isn't achievable. That's strong leadership, of course. And we all know uh, that sometimes being too open 
me being so open presents a, a danger to me in some regards. Some people might not want to employ me as a result. So we've got to recognise that some of these things need to be done behind the scenes, but through strong leadership. Talk about uh, effective coaching, health and well-being and of athletes a lot. In uh, some recent research that just doing the theme of my interviews and stuff, you'll be familiar with that stuff, just doing it yesterday, in fact. Uh, the consensus amongst a wide group from board members of national governing bodies through to Olympic athletes was comes down to strong leadership. We've got a number of challenges, but it comes down to leadership to say, these are the types of coaches we want to employ. These are the types of coaches or these are the types of qualifications we need from these people. So it comes down to strong leadership, making brave decisions, understanding what is contributing to key performance indicators and what is just window dressing and, and what's keeping uh, the funders happy as well. The funders aren't dafty. They, they know the wool. Others are trying to pull the wool over their eyes. But sometimes it's convenient for them to let that go anyway because their funding is dependent on the national governing bodies achieving stuff as well. So it's all intertwined. Just think it needs honest appraisal of situations, clear focus on achieving KPIs in a way that works through really strong leadership and in coaching that means the leader's understanding how important the role of the coach is i mentioned it in in my article as well is many of the things i i do in my practice well, I, I would liken to a general practitioner in medicine the complexity of managing human behavior Sometimes health, illness, maladaptive behaviours, really difficult. It's really hard. And I was, saying, I was about to say I'm lucky enough to have the uh, training and education to be able to just about navigate that complexity. And I mean just about. I get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes I don't cope. Sometimes I don't have the tools in my toolbox to influence behaviour in the way I would like to. And I've got 20 odd years of education and training and real good practical experience behind me and I struggle. And, and I would say there's not too many people that are as well qualified for, for the role as I am. Many have just been great athletes thrown into positions and expected to deal with things that I'm going, this is really, really difficult. I'm quite good at that. I've got a really good network of, and I know when to ask for help. I know what clinical psychiatrists do. <laughs> I know what they've got in their toolbox. I, I know how they may or may not use specific treatments. Uh, I have appreciation of whether that will work for a particular athlete or not. That's a professional role. It's a difficult role. So I think those in leadership positions 
need to understand how complex the role of a coach is, what a professional role the coach is, that professional coaches shouldn't be seen as part of the volunteer workforce, uh, that there, there is, I, I see the need, for example, there's an agenda towards activators in sport to get more people involved, but an activator is very different to a coach. So not, let's not conflate the role of an activator and the role of a coach. I would suggest through careful definition of coaching and what a coach does is essential so that we can differentiate between a professional role and a volunteer role of just giving someone a reasonably pleasant time without killing them. Uh, they're very different. And, and I think sports need to recognise that differentiation. Many do, but some don't. Bringing the conversation to a close, can you offer some suggestion as to how a coach can start addressing the issues we've raised in this discussion? Because I will probably never be a decision maker at the strategic level, but I can make decisions that will inform my practice in 30 minutes' time. Can you just speak to me about how coaches might empower themselves when they're at the court face? Yeah, I think, uh, again, the professional judgment and decision-making model is really good uh, to do so. So it's not just, it's saying, why am I doing what I'm doing? What are the, what are the alternatives? If I chose an alternative, what, what would be the outcome? What evidence have I got to suggest what the decisions I've made have actually worked? So that a really a simple framework of five questions, asking five questions of oneself to effectively appraise what we do in practice uh, is really, really effective. Uh, I, I ask of coaches all the time, why have you chosen this approach and not an alternative? I've asked of swimming coaches, for example, all right, so let's change the constraints of your environment. Now, you're not allowed to talk about aerobic or anaerobic development or lactate tolerance or any physiology at all. And let's take the lane ropes out of your swimming pool. Tell me how you would design your session and tell me why you would design it in that way and what do you hope to achieve through doing that and keep it zipped towards the uh, physiological stuff. Let's talk about how it enhances performance or how it creates a fun environment because these two things, fun and performance, oh, hit every KPI in sport if we have fun and performance boxes tip. So professional judgment and decision-making uh, questions on why we do what we do. You're a strength and conditioning coach, so why do you use the particular methods that you use in, in your practice? We, we know that a particular discourse, a particular social milieu exists in strength and conditioning in which 
lots of people look like you. <laughs> quite male orientated, quite muscle orientated, a particular mindset and a particular type of person that goes into that environment and, and is motivated to go into that environment. So questions is, well, are your approaches the best ways of developing strength in a particular athlete? What are the alternatives? Could you design a strategy to develop strength in a different way? Uh, I mentioned this, I think, in a tweet earlier. And I was speaking with a, a football coach of, I was about to say a top club, but it was in Scotland, so it wasn't that. <laughs> um, and I was talking about with this coach about uh, the old methods of hearts and hips in which they would go down to Gullen Beach, which is just, what, 15 kilometres down the coast from me, one of my favourite places on earth. And the football teams used to go down there. And it's like, oh, that, that's, that's a load of nonsense, wah, wah, wah. I said, well, let's look at it a different way. I'll put my scientific hat on. I will put my skill acquisition hat on. Tell me how a ball will move differently on the sand. Oh, it'll spin differently and it'll come off faster. All right, so we're, we're, we're changing the constraints of that situation, which means that players have got to be more agile in responding to how the ball moves. Oh, so right, that's good. And then, oh, we've got the, the sand dunes up there. And if you've seen the sand dunes at Gullen, they're like... 70 degree slope of moving sand. So running up to the top of one of these, you're really developing power to get up there. So how can we use the sand dunes to develop uh, power uh, or, or speed endurance through running up a sand dune? Uh, then how much fun do players have playing on the beach? And what do they do after? Oh, they jump in the sea and have a swim. Oh, we've got cryotherapy. <laughs> Don't need an ice bath. <laughs> Although the evidence is a bit debatable on, on that. But, uh, so all of a sudden we've got this really advanced environment to develop all these physiological components. We've got the skill acquisition, the ball moving in a different way, players having to be more agile, uh, Less impact loading. Oh, and there's a really nice golf club around the corner where everyone can play golf in the afternoon, have a small libation afterwards, as many footballers like to do, uh, and they have a jolly time. So tell me what's wrong with that training environment. How does it not achieve what you want it to achieve? It's just different. So exploring these alternatives and the reasons we do what we do and what we're trying to develop, I think, is all we can ask of coaches, reorientating how we think about developing performance. Uh, can we, in cycling, I, I occasionally deliver cycling courses now, although after my article, I don't think I will be doing them for British Cycling. Uh, but the demands of cycling, it's complex, dynamic, it's ever-changing. Uh, so how can we use curbs? How can we use trees? How can we use grassy banks to develop uh, skills, techniques, physical components of 
performance. How do we use that environment rather than how do we constrain with a cone or a specific activity that's designed to for cornering? Things like that, just being challenging and using the, the ecological dynamics model, if you will, with fewer big words. How do we manipulate task and environment in relation to the individual to give them a more engaging, fun experience and still develop their performance at the same time? Thank you for a fascinating discussion. I would encourage everyone to seek out your paper um, just from the point of view of challenging their own bias, their own thoughts, their own opinions and and looking to be very critical in their thinking. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me, dear. Thank you for writing the paper and encouraging that critical thinking. No worries. Pleasure speaking. <laughs>